0: Hey welcome back to the journal feed my name is Nick Zelt and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine here we make keeping up with the literature easy it's like having the latest research spoon-fed to you straight through your earbuds now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering from this week First off, we have a non-invasive ventilation for asthma, after that the outcomes for survived hangings, then pushing phenylephrine in septic shock, followed by safely intubating pediatric patients, and finishing off with when to intubate in ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema. This of course is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the chivalrous Michael Wolf, Sam Parnell, and Clay Smith. Now, without further ado, here's the first article, which was titled Non Invasive Ventilation Use in Critically Ill Patients with Acute Asthma Exacerbations, out of the American Journal of Respirology and Critical Care Medicine. Non Invasive ventilation has done wonders for reducing the amount of invasive mechanical ventilation that's done. Clear benefit has been shown for COPD, and of course, it's pretty well standard of care now for early COVID disease. Another group of patients that might benefit are asthmatic patients, who are at increased risk of lung injury and ventilator-associated pneumonia, so we'd rather not intubate them in the first place if at all possible. Non-invasive strategies have already been widely embraced for asthma, but are we truly doing these patients benefit? Let's have a trial to find out. This was a retrospective review of ICU admissions from 682 hospitals that included 54,000 patients with asthma exacerbations. 25% of these cases received non-invasive ventilation and 27% had invasive mechanical ventilation. They used generalized estimating equations to figure out which variables impacted the outcomes and found that patients who had non-invasive ventilation strategies used on them had a 64% lower chances of needing invasive mechanical ventilation. With a pretty tight confidence interval and an adjusted odds ratio of just 0.32 to 0.4, That's pretty good, that's pretty tight. And if that wasn't enough, the odds of death were also reduced by 52%. Now of course the obvious criticism to this is that these patients were just less sick. So of course they had less need for mechanical ventilation and had better outcomes. But they tried to account for this in their equations and even with propensity matching, came up with similar results. Now this data can't replace an RCT by any means. But if you've got an asthmatic patient who's still mentating well, but you think is likely going to need to be intubated, then try them on non-invasive techniques first. In a spoonful, non-invasive ventilation may reduce the need for subsequent invasive mechanical ventilation and even reduce mortality in critically ill asthmatic patients. Following that, we had the second article which was titled Outcomes in 886 Critically Ill Patients After Near-Hanging Injury, out of the journal CHEST. Oof, oh, this is nobody's favorite patient population. Near-hanging patients are heart-wrenching to care for. And now this may not be the best coping mechanism out there, but let me help you intellectualize things by going over a little bit of survival data. This was a multi-center study of 886 adult patients with self-inflicted near-hanging injury, who were resuscitated and then made it to the hospital half of them had a cardiac arrest due to their hanging injury and 56 percent survived to discharge thankfully most of these survivors also had favorable neurological outcomes at 96 percent of them to prognosticate a little bit the factors that were related to in-hospital mortality were the hanging induced cardiac arrest a glucose over 142 milligrams per deciliter on admission to the ICU, that's 7.9 millimoles per liter for my Canadians, and a lactate over 3.5 on ICU admission. By far the most predictive element though was hanging induced arrest. In a spoonful, patients who make it to the hospital after near hanging had a 56% chance of survival to discharge, most of them with good neurological outcomes. Factors predictive of mortality were hanging induced cardiac arrest, hyperglycemia, and hyperlactatemia over 3.5. Then the third article, titled Effect of Phenylephrine Push Prior to Continuous Infusion Norepinephrine in Patients with Septic Shock, out of the journal CHEST. ER docs aren't the only people who treat hypotension. Indeed, in the operating room, hypotension is really common because of the vasoplegic nature of most anesthetics. In the OR, a popular treatment for this is phenylephrine, which is a pure alpha agonist, which helps to clamp down on vessel tone. To borrow a page from their book though, and I won't harbor a guess at who started using this first, phenylephrine is sometimes used to stabilize the map in septic patients while waiting for a norepinephrine drip to get started. Is this safe though? This was a retrospective study of patients with septic shock, a little over 1,300 patients, with 181 of them who received push-dose phenylephrine. 141 of those 181 we were able to be propensity matched at a ratio of 1 to 2 with patients otherwise similar, but without the phenylephrine. The primary outcome was hemodynamic stability, and guess what? Phenylephrine works. There was an odds ratio of 1.8 for hemodynamic stability at 3 hours. That was 28.4% being hemodynamically stable in the phenylephrine group and 10% less in the group who didn't get it. But by 12 hours, there was no difference in stability. Great, so phenylephrine works. But what's the cost? Unfortunately, there was an increased association with ICU mortality in this group as well, with an adjusted odds ratio of 1.88. Now, even with propensity matching, this still isn't a prospective study, and the chances for bias from patients who were getting phenylephrine to being sicker, just not a negligible chance. In a spoonful, push dose phenylephrine improved early hemodynamic stability, but was associated with an increase in ICU mortality rates in septic shock patients. Maybe earlier anticipation of needing an norepinephrine drip would be the best thing for these patients. Then next up we have the fourth article which was titled Sustained Improvement in Tracheal Intubation Safety Across a 15-Center Quality Improvement Collaborative An Interventional Study from the National Emergency Airway Registry for Children Investigators out of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. One in five of all pediatric tracheal intubations is associated with an adverse event and 3% with severe adverse events like cardiac arrest. In other areas, many with less impressive adverse event rates, checklists and bundles have become quite popular to supplement good clinical judgment, reduce errors, and improve outcomes. With pediatric and intubation outcomes being as bad as they are, why not give it a try for these as well? This was a multi center quality improvement study using the National Emergency Airway Registry for Children, abbreviated to NEAR4Kids, to determine the effectiveness of a safety bundle to reduce adverse events around tracheal intubation. Data was collected from 19 ICUs from 2013 to 2015 in phases to compare outcomes before and after checklist implementation. Adverse events decreased from 17.5% at baseline. in two years after centers were able to show an 80% bundle adherence. After adjusting for confounders, the odds of any of the many adverse events that they followed were reduced for all subsequent phases of the QI study. This gave an adjusted odds ratio of 0.63. Now, I'm impressed. The downsides, though, were that the number of multiple intubation attempts and the rates of hypoxemia did not reduce with these bundles. Also, if an adherence rate of more than 80% wasn't reached, then those sites didn't show a decrease in adverse events. So if you're interested in something like this for your own site, Near4Kids actually offers resources for centers looking to develop their own site-specific bundles and encourages assembling a multidisciplinary team to implement, study, and improve upon it. In a spoonful, implementation of a pediatric intubation safety quality improvement bundle is associated with sustained improvement in PICU intubations. But high buy-in is necessary. And so we move on to the last article, which was titled Emergency Department Evaluation of Patients with Angiotensin Converting Enzyme Inhibitor Associated to Angioedema, under the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. ACE inhibitors cause something like 30 to 40% of all ED visits for angioedema. The most feared complication is, of course, airway obstruction, which can occur in up to 10% of cases. The problem, though, is that it's hard to tell who these 10% are going to be, especially since ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema most commonly affects the lips, tongues, and face, but won't always lead to distress. So a little help in deciding who's going to need an advanced airway before that airway gets even harder to secure would be great. This was a retrospective study of 190 patients with ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema over a three-year period out of a single large urban tertiary referral emergency department. A whole 10% of these patients were intubated, with none of them requiring surgical airways. The things that they were able to identify as risk factors for needing intubation were a rapid progression of symptoms within the first 6 hours of onset of edema, anterior tongue swelling, vocal changes, drooling, and dyspnea. Isolated lip swelling occurred in 54% of cases, but these patients were significantly less likely to require intubation. So with these factors in mind, hopefully you'll be a bit more comfortable stratifying the risks of your ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema cases. In a spoonful, risk factors for intubation in patients with ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema were rapid progression in the first 6 hours since onset, anterior tongue swelling, vocal changes, drooling, and dyspnea. Patients with isolated lip swelling were significantly less likely to need intubation. And that wraps us up everybody, let's do a quick rapid review of everything that we covered. First, the use of non-invasive ventilation was associated with cutting the rates of invasive mechanical ventilation and death by more than half in a large retrospective study on ICU admitted asthmatic patients. Next, a full 56% of near-hanging patients will make it to discharge, almost all of them with good neurological status. The most predictive factor for death in hospital was hanging induced cardiac arrest. Then phenylephrine proved itself to be rather two-faced. Increasing short-term hemodynamic stability by nearly two-fold, which was great, but also associated with ICU mortality to the same degree. Just sicker patients, I don't know. Then from the fourth article, if you can get most of your team on board, then a bundle for quality improvement in pediatric intubations is effective. And lastly, think ahead in ACE inhibitor-associated angioedema patients. Risk factors for requiring intubation were rapid progression in the first six hours since onset, anterior tongue swelling, vocal changes, drooling, and dyspnea. Now, you've earned them, and we offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where you can also find all the links to the article summarized, and if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.